0: Welcome to the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the Retro Talk Network where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, we talk about it here. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And we're so happy to have you with us on another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We hope that you enjoy the next half hour or so of fun and merriment that we have for you. Let's tell you, first of all, how you can reach us. You can send us an email at galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. So stop by the website and have a look. Drop us an email. Let us know what you think of our shows. We're also now on Facebook. So please be sure to visit the Galaxy Moonbeam Night page on Facebook. Friend us if you are a Facebook fan and join us on our page. We have some more pictures there of TVs and Ian and Mike and myself. You can see what we look like and what some of our guests look like. So um, we hope that you'll drop by there and have a look. To begin our show, hey, baby boomers, are you ready for a big senior moment? Ian Rose will join you.
1: The front end of that movement turned 65 in 2011. The late Art Linkletter said that old age was not for sissies and that senior living is not a Mickey Mouse operation. A definitive moment is arriving for boomers. Is the Social Security check in the mail? The definition for baby boomers is anyone born in the U.S. from 1946 to 1964. That's a 19-year stretch. It's as if we had a generation gap in a generation. While some members are getting pensions... Others are still in their 40s, wondering if they're going to get theirs. Looking back, among the major events during this period, according to Time Almanac, included 1946, Winston Churchill delivers his Iron Curtain speech. 47, Chuck Yeager breaks the sound barrier. 48, the Berlin Airlift. 49, Mao proclaims the Communist People's Republic of China. 1950, the Korean War starts. 51. The Rosenbergs are sentenced to death for passing atomic secrets to the Russians. 52. George VI dies. 53. Stalin dies. 54. Dr. Jonas Salk starts inoculating youngsters against polio. 55. Rosa Parks refuses to sit at the back of the bus. 56. It's the Suez Canal crisis. 57. The space age race begins with the Russian launch of Sputnik. 58. Europe's common market is open for business. 59. Alaska and Hawaii become states. 1960. U 2 spy plane pilot Gary Powers is shot down over Russia. 61. The Berlin Wall goes up. 62. The Cuban Missile Crisis threatens nuclear war. 63. President Kennedy is assassinated. And 64. Our crucial Vietnam War milestone, Congress approves the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. By the way, it is the Vietnam War that divides the baby boom generation. For early boomers, it was a reality. For late boomers, a news story. Other events can disappear altogether. Now, being born in 1947, I have no memory of the Korean War, which ran from 50 to 53. I vaguely remember the Suez Crisis of 56, I well remember Sputnik of 57, when Alaska and Hawaii became states, and certainly the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy assassination. And that generation included a sizable increase in the population. 77 million new Americans arrived by birth during uh, that 20-year period, near that anyway. To the tune of 77 Sunset Strip, that's right, 77 million baby boomers. This population has been described, if you were turning this into a graph as a pig in a python, that population increase manifests itself in my life this way. In class, I remember double sessions in grammar school in central New Jersey. I was part of the half that went for four hours in the morning, and the other half went for four hours in the afternoon. By the way, this topic was the subject of a front-page story in USA Today recently, December 3rd, 4th, and 5th of 2010. The article was entitled The Boomer Divide. The baby boomer implied that when Mr. America got back from the war and married Mrs. America, they brought more kids into the world during a period of record prosperity. Maybe they were making up for lost time due to the depression that had preceded World War II and World War II itself. The article says, quote, being a baby boomer is part of a unique and historical experience. You have to remember Captain Kangaroo. yes. I remember. I remember the Captain and Mr. Green Jeans and Bunny Rabbit and ads for breakfast cereals with way too much sugar in them. Where was I? Being a baby boomer put you in an odd place in history. Missed it by that much. Me, myself, as a boomer near the front end, having been born in 1947, missed the Great Depression by about three-quarters of a decade and World War II by a couple of years. According to Tom Brokaw, The people who fought that war are part of the greatest generation. They not only survived the Depression, but they made the world safer democracy after their parents did it the first time. The worst ever Depression, the worst ever war, that was when, and then we baby boomers experienced, the greatest economic growth up to that time in the nation's history in the 1950s. Shouldn't we feel guilty for that? Well, if not guilty, then beleaguered. We were never put to the test, so we'll never know how we would have reacted to the Depression in World War II. Maybe we have our own crosses to bear. We certainly had a a lot of quotable quotes, and here's one of them. Never trust anyone over 30. What do we say now? Never trust anyone under 60. (laughs) So we double the age and head in the other direction. How about the saying, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. No waffling here. You have to take sides. Neutrality would not cut it here. And my favorite baby boom saying Not that I practice, it goes like this. Tune in, turn on, and drop out. That was obviously for the drug crowd. It was inspired by Dr. Timothy Leary. Speaking of uh, what this could lead to, how about the saying, live fast, die young, and have a good-looking corpse. Now, we survived all that, so much for the good-looking corpse. There's always plastic surgery. Yes, the Pepsi generation, for those who think young, is now getting old. But uh, old 60 may be the new 40 these days. But who's hitting coup? Body parts are now falling apart. We're spending more time in the doctor's office. You know you're getting old when Sally Field, the flying nun, and TV's Gidget is now pushing pills to bind up your bones. (laughs) Ditto when Patty Duke, who played a girl in The Miracle Worker, is doing in-office ads at your Social Security office. You know you've arrived there. And you may be getting old. But Bud from TV's Father's Owns Best is said to be looking good at 71. In the final analysis, do we really have a lot to complain about? When I was a young man there was concerned that the U.S. and the Soviet Union would exchange some nuclear attacks, the thought was a war would start, there'd be some destruction, and then we'd stop, both of us. It would have been a limited war. How limited was not clear. I recall a story that said the Russians had a first-strike capability of killing 80 million Americans. 80 million. Well, we dodged that bullet or missile. What about the threats of starvation? Some said we'd see 8 billion people on this planet, maybe more, at the turn of the century. Hunger would increase. Mass starvation. Well, we didn't hit 8 billion. We're now at 6.5 billion. What happened to the other 1.5 billion souls? I don't know. Starvation apparently wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. And who would have guessed that obesity would now be an epidemic. Now here comes our first Social Security check. SSI paid off. All together now. SSI, K-E-Y, M-O-U-S-E.
2: I'm Ian Rose. that, That was wonderful. I'm amazed. You're saying Bud Anderson is 71 years old? He is. Now, he's up for parole here soon, isn't he? No, he's not in jail. No, <laughs> oh, well, he had some issues. I forgot. I, I, no, no, no. Know. Wait. At, <laughs> at my age, uh, none of the facts seem to blend in. Well, the facts blend in, but not with the right names. No, I see. There's somebody else I think was sent away. Who were we thinking about? Well, let's see. David Cassidy's going to probably do a little bit of time for his latest drunk driving escapade. Was oh.
0: he caught in another. Uh... <laughs> Motoring incident? Well, he was caught
2: in a sting operation. He was pulled over after drinking 15 stingaroos. Mm. So <laughs> that was amazing. My dad's going to love this episode. Uh, he had plenty to say about the hippie movement. He said they called them flower children because they're all blooming idiots. <laughs> 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 Remember that, Dad? Oh, <laughs> here's yeah.
0: another one that John Daly talked about on an episode of What's My Line? He said, did you hear about the two hippies that were married in the bathtub? It was a double ring ceremony. Oh, very nice! <laughs> I can't take credit for that one. That was uh, John Charles Daly.
2: Well, but- I, I remember my brother. My brother got arrested for shoplifting. He was only fifteen years old, so they called my dad. But he, he walked out. Uh, walked out of the bookstore in Los Angeles with Abby Hoffman's book titled "Steal This Book." <laughs> So that was one for the juvenile authorities, but it was a good story. And uh, the 50s were interesting. When did the 50s actually end? What year? You know, I've had this debate. We've before. talked about We've it. We've talked about it. Did, did we, did we uh, reconvene on that? I think some said that they ended with the, actually in 63,
1: with the Kennedy assassination.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Is it fair that fair enough, too? I've uh,
2: I, that. I, I would probably think 63. There are some people that listened to this and they uh, emailed me and some called and said they thought maybe it was the 50s ended with the hippie movement. 65, 66 could be, but a lot of these hippies were folk singers before they were hippies. You watch the PBS, the TV special on the history of American folk. Most of these people who played the banjos, first of all, they were in crew cuts and ties and sport coats. And then fast forward three or four years later, like Barry McGuire and a few of the a few of the folk singers, and they were all long-haired uh, beads and paisley tie-dye guys.
1: And let me get this straight: these were guys that grew their hair long. To look different, so they all look the same.
2: Yeah, they wanted the <laughs> they wanted to create their own identity, and in doing so, created their own identity. And uh, they were totally anti-establishment, and in the process, created their own establishment.
0: They were living in an alternate reality.
2: <laughs> yes, in an alternate reality, the which is an off ramp somewhere <laughs> west of Highway Eight near Alpine.
0: Did the beatniks turn into the hippies, or was that a whole totally different well, thing? Well,
2: were the beatniks the folk guys, the folkies? Yeah, they were, weren't they? I or were the beatniks
1: thought, the bongo pounders? I thought that was the
2: transition, or am I wrong there? That's what I thought. The one led to the other. Yeah, well, the beatniks in the the mid to late 50s, the poets, Jack Kerouac and Corso and a lot of the San Francisco guys who hung up, hung out up at Columbus Square were poets. And they hung out in coffee houses and read poetry and, and basically uh, used up valuable oxygen that other people could have used for <laughs> productive purposes. <laughs> but somewhere along the line, they became beatniks. And then we we actually had a TV show pattern after my favorite beatnik, Maynard G. Krebs. Yes, sure. true. Dobie Gillis. Dobie Gillis, yeah. yeah. And, he, and I guess he, was, he, w- he played the epitome of the beatnik, the slacker, the lazy guy, the goatee, the cutoff sweatshirt, and everybody... I don't think there was a beatnik movement. I think it was a Maynard G. Krebs movement. And then the beatniks, uh, for whatever reason, became the folkies who became the hippies, who became today's bankers who have ruined the country. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anti-establishment, you go. Uh, They're
0: all, yeah. And on the other um, topic on this, Ian, that you were talking about was the people that went through the Depression, went through World War II, which, as we've talked about it before on the show, the greatest generation, as hmm. Tom Brokaw I do wonder how we would have faced those crises or the people, the young people today, how would they have faced those crises? I mean, I know that during World War II, there was a lot of coming together of the country. People were working together. There was everything from selling war bonds to scrap drives to supporting the troops to the stories of the all the girls that would be out at the trains with the troops and they would be handing them donuts and sandwiches. And I wonder if that would happen today or whether it would be totally different if everybody would just have a totally different attitude. Do you guys have any thoughts on that?
1: I, I You know, I, I like to think that we r- would rise to the occasion. Yeah, It's just we haven't been given the opportunity.
0: I think the closest we came was 9-11. Yes, that's true. Just the support that the nation kind of rallied around each other and trying to come together during a time of crisis like that.
1: Yeah. And, then, of course, that didn't last very long, though, did it? No,
0: it didn't. It didn't. We kind of went back to business as usual there after a while.
2: Yeah. There's been a lot of commentary on that. During the Depression people the Americans just did not band together there were soup lines there were educated people who would who would work picking peaches but there was just no uh, national movement of let's get through this. Inter-World War II everybody got together everybody became patriotic everybody helped each other and for no other reason than they had an identifiable enemy. During the depression what was the enemy? There was no enemy.
0: So what you're saying, Mike, is that the nation came together during World War II, but not so much during the Depression.
2: From what I've learned, even in college classes and over the years and Mm -hmm. talking to a lot of people who were actually participants Mm -hmm. in the Depression, including my dad and and my uncle and my grandparents, I talked to them quite a bit. They lost everything. And in my conversations with them, um, the Depression, pretty much everybody was pretty much on their own. The rich were hurting as bad as the poor. There were people in America starving to death. Mm. they They found people in their homes dead from starvation. Mm. Children were starving, which brought FDR into power. He came in as the as the savior, and a lot of that was because of social programs to help people. But to band together, you talked about the trains and the girls with the roses and greeting the sailors sure. as they got off the there was I don't think there was anything like that in history until World War II. Even World War I, you see some of the newsreels, some of the footage. A lot of parades, uh, General Blackjack Pershing, going down Fifth Avenue with the troops and people cheering and whatnot. But just the, uh, I, would, I guess you'd cause it the positive hysteria of this horrible thing's over. Not only did we go through the Depression, but we walked right into a war and now both are done. It must just have been an incredible sense of relief. I can only imagine the elation on on were Day. Oh, yeah, these were people in their 20s who had never known normal. They had known a depression, a horrible depression where people were starving, where there was no work, where they saw their parents lose everything, and they went right into a war where they lost family members and horrible things happening in the world. Uh, These are people who grew up and since birth did not know what normal was. We got to 1945, and things changed, and they started becoming a new normal. It's funny.
1: I've seen World War II in a different light only because so many of my relatives are British. Mm -hmm. I remember they they were there earlier than than America. Right. And my father always said about World War II, it was six years. And to him, it was six years out of his life. The the point he was making was whatever you're planning for your life, you have to take out six years now, and fight this war, and then six years later, get back to what you were doing. Resume your life. Yeah. Mm, and six years is a heck of a long time.
0: It's a long time, yeah. 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 Well, Ian, Mike, thanks a lot for that. And Ian, thanks for that great piece. And
2: Yeah, good work here. Yeah, Thank pretty
0: you. thought-provoking. We're going to pause now for our retro commercial, and then we'll be back with more of GalaxyMoonBeamNightSight.com. So don't go away. We're going to be right back. When something catches Charlie's eye that makes his pulse rates climb He uses a whistle,
1: a wink, and Wild Root, it he gets her every time That's because Wild Root grooms clean as a whistle, quick as a wink Works fast, disappears in your hair, grooms with no greasiness at all
2: That's why when Charlie sees a lovely girl, a
1: girl like yours or mine He uses a whistle, a wink, and Wild Root, it he gets her every time and now, ladies and gentlemen, the, the wet head is dead, and we're into the dry look. Isn't that what we, we transitioned into? That was what you call one of those where we did a complete 180. <laughs> we go from a wet head to a dry one, <laughs> all the way down to our roots. Well, how about this? The commercialization of World War II. We were just talking about that war, and we're also talking about government film on TV, There's a connection here, and Mike, you're going to explain it to us,
2: aren't you? Well, we're on a roll here today on on controversy about World War II (laughs) 65 years ago. Yes. 65 years ago that the war that affected every country and almost every person on the face of the earth ended. And I I do, before I start this story, want to thank all of those people who served and who sacrificed. Little do we appreciate sometime the greatest generation. Yeah, World War II, imagine the the top broadcasting company in the world getting together with the most powerful government in the world, United States, and getting together still with one of the finest songwriters, musicians in the world and creating World War II, the musical. Well, that was what I tend to call almost sarcastically, victory at sea. Victory at Sea was a wonderful documentary, it was created in 1952, and we're going to get right back and talk to you about that, but we're going to give you that famous intro by none other than Richard Rogers. One of the most beautiful tunes in the world that opened up one, uh, a documentary about one of the biggest tragedies of, of humanity and probably of all time, World War II. But Victory at Sea was a documentary television series about naval warfare during World War II, it was originally broadcast by NBC in the United States during 1952 and 1953. It was made into a full-length feature film in 1954, very popular, Why we're talking about this is because most of the material, the footage, was documentary footage produced by the governments of the world during the war. Of course, the Germans and the Japanese lost, but we had access to all their footage. Uh, The United States had thousands and thousands of feet of naval war footage. Well, there was a gentleman named Henry Solomon, who was a sailor. He was in the U.S. Navy during World War II, And he was a research assistant to a historian, and they were writing the history of the United States naval operations in World War II. And Henry Solomon had an idea. He was a Harvard guy. He got together with a guy by the name of Robert Sarnoff, whose dad was David Sarnoff of NBC. They realized there's hundreds of thousands of feet of war footage available out in the world, and they got a grant for five hundred thousand dollars from NBC. And they got the blessing of the United States government, Department of the Navy, who thought it would be great publicity to have a documentary series about naval operations in World War II. So all of the Navy footage was made available to NBC for free. And this turned into two seasons, and it also became a feature film. But the best part about it is NBC, it was one of the most profitable half-hour series in the history of television. Having this, your audience... A lot of World War II veterans, a lot of people involved in World War II. Early stages of television broadcast, 1952, 1953, it was very compelling. It was very well done. They got Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein, who wrote musicals, to write the score. And the score was surgically fitted to the footage, so it was almost like a high opera to watch an episode of Victory at Sea, and I just love watching them. They're so artistic. It's the Navy version of a Frank Capra, Why We Fight, right, Ian? That's a good way of putting it. That's how I thought. And I got both series of those for Christmas. I just love the documentaries. But I was watching Victory at Sea, and I said, this is high opera, using a, a, a horrible disaster, World War II, making it not only an opera, but making it make millions of dollars, because what NBC did after the feature film in 1953... They syndicated it out, and by 1956, nearly every nation in the free world had syndicated and bought rights to use Victory at Sea on their television programming. Mm -hmm. NBC made millions and millions of dollars. Today, it would probably equal to almost a billion dollars in revenues for free content. They didn't pay a cent for any of the content. They didn't have to send anybody out with cameras. They needed a staff of editors, and they had full rights the Navy had signed over full rights to the end product. NBC, to this day, still owns that product.
0: How about that? Now, all this footage that was shot, at least on the, uh, on the American side, Mike, this is all footage that was shot by the Signal Corps or by the Navy? Uh, well,
2: no, not all of it. A lot of it was shot by the Japanese Imperial Navy.
0: Okay, but I'm saying as far as the, the American footage, that was all shot by our Signal Corps. By, the Navy. Signal
2: by the Navy. Right. And so was By all Navy that, camera operators. So was
0: all that in public domain, or how did that work?
2: It was stored. At the end of the war, everything was gathered up, and reels were stored, and they were indexed and put into a library. Mm-hmm. And the government's position was well, there's really nothing to use these for anymore. They were basically used for newsreels and for reconnaissance and for intelligence during the war. And my question was always, well, the Navy signed this over to NBC and basically gave them carte blanche and, and full rights to use this for commercial television, thinking it would be a great publicity item. Why did the Navy need publicity seven years after the war was over? Specifically because the war was over. Okay, thank you, Ian. So I was for, hoping for that, Ian.
0: So for uh, recruiting uh, type thing? An image, certainly. An image, okay, image, all yeah. right. And then getting back to what you said, Mike, then a lot of the footage was captured from the Japanese and from the, from the Japanese,
2: enemies. Chinese Navy, uh, reconnaissance, uh, there were Australians, uh, they okay. were, they were, what were they called? The Island Watchers? Um, the Australians who would sit up on the islands and, and watch Japanese ship movements and report back. One? They had uh, home movie footage from refugees, newsreel footage that would go over to the war department. After it aired on newsreels, it was no longer used. NBC bought this. They bought the private newsreel footage, but they bought it for pennies. Nobody nobody thought they'd ever have a use for it. But the geniuses at NBC, David Sarnoff and his group, created and they won multiple Peabody Awards and several Emmys from this documentary. And it's a classic work of art to this day. Even though it's black and white and some of the footage is bad, you had a, a Leonard Graves, who, who did the narration, mm-hmm, very right. booming, very dynamic voice, but in the feature length, that was so popular as a television series, they had a very, very prominent, very famous speaker by the name of Alexander Scorby. Oh, sure. Well, they used him for the film. They used him for the oh, feature length. interesting. Okay. And they, they were off and going. Hmm. Over the years after that, it was an inspiration for other networks, other T V uh, television corporations and networks to do stuff with documentary. -hmm. But no one ever could get to the close, the quality of victory at sea. Uh, Jim Bishop was a correspondent for ABC during the war, and he was hired in 1962 to narrate a documentary show called Battle Line. And Battle Line used footage from both sides, and this German footage, British footage, American footage, and they would take the footage, and then they would have the voices of the soldiers who were there. They would have a German, a German infantryman and Counterpoint with an American Soldier, and they'd talk perhaps about the Battle of the Bulge. Now that's out in DVD now too. But this, and we talk a lot in in past shows about the infancy of television programming. No one really knew what the American public was interested in watching, so they had to experiment. In this case, with Victory at Sea, the experiment just was spectacular. made them money to this day. Even the syndication of the DVD collections. Sixty years later, Victory at Sea free content, documentary footage of the biggest violent catastrophe in the history of mankind is still making money for television. And you
1: notice the fact that it was a television production. Richard Rogers was no slouch here. I mean, you, you're right, he did musicals, and he didn't give it one of these, oh, it's only television, I'll just knock it out. He did a great piece of music. That
2: stands the test of time and is very high quality. Well, he had, come, he had just come off several successful Broadway musicals, and to compose the musical score, it had never been done. Richard Rodgers' musicals were very whimsical and fun and happy. Think about Richard Rodgers getting this challenge. We're going to have you do a score about this violent, horrible uh-huh. war where millions of people perished. Mm-hmm. The 12 themes were basically short piano compositions that were about a minute or two in length and they can be examined today. There's a Richard Rogers collection in the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. and you can actually download those. Richard Rogers was perfect for this because he was able to transform the themes for a variety of moods. If you notice, if you've seen these Victory Seas right before this battleship, this salvo, this naval battle, the drum rolls and the timpani and the just setting the emotion for what you're about to see on the newsreel. Richard Rogers conducted that through the NBC Symphony Orchestra which we've talked about in previous sessions.
0: Well, the music is definitely a a major player in this series. The music, the dramatic music sets the mood and binds the different scenes together.
2: Well, they were yeah, and he would bind the scenes together and he would he would name these tunes Something that fit with whatever he wrote the tune for. For typical, there was a song Richard Rodgers, or a a score he created called The Song of the High Seas. Mm -hmm. And it was about our Navy fleet sailing off to Midway to engage the Japanese. The Pacific Boils Over, Fire on the Waters, Guadalcanal March, Peleliu. And these were very compelling titles. You can buy the LPs. There were four, uh, actually four different album versions of Richard Rodgers called Victory at Sea. Yeah,
0: I'm just going to say that RCA Victor released those at that same time period, and I think they're still available on CD today.
2: And there's a lot of these clips available on YouTube. Mm -hmm. You can type in Richard Rodgers Victory at Sea or Victory at Sea, and you can watch some of these to see how the musical score fits so surgically and so perfectly with common, typical war footage. Very interesting stuff. Very interesting
0: stuff. Mike, thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us. Thank you. We appreciate that. Well, we're just about at the end of our show for today, but we want to remind you how you can reach us. You can visit our website. It's galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. com. that's our website. And our email is galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Drop us a note. Let us know what you think of our shows. If you have any ideas for any topics you'd like to hear, let us know. And we're also on Facebook. Come visit the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside page on Facebook and friend us if you are a Facebook fan and join us on our page. That's all the time we have for today's show. We sure thank you for joining us. We're happy to have had you with us. So until next time, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. We'll see you then, folks. Take good care and look forward to having you with us again next time.